Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. <laughs> you guys are nuts. On the Twitter machine, it's at Pete Callender, and holy cow, this guy, this guy, this guy from New York comes down here is going to tell everybody that they're idiots and maggots and everything else. Yeah. Like, seriously, why be in a place if you hate it so much? Just go home. Just go back up to New York. Right? Where are you, oh, are you saying that somebody offered you a job down here? Because I guess they don't have them up there. But somebody offered you a job down here, and so you abandoned all your principles to move down here and take the money? You sold out? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Uh, that is what this guy's saying. Is so in case you're just joining us, we've been in a uh, in an entertaining yet long running uh, argument with uh, with a guy who claims uh, that words don't matter. He's a leftist. He moved down here and he says words don't matter. But now he's very upset with me because I called him a pedophile. <laughs> Which, hey, if words don't matter, why are you upset? He's very upset. Now he's taking it to the point of like, you say that to my face, man. Say it to my face. So now this is like, this is the next stop before we get to the, you know, the posting of my personal information online, the the vague threats of personal injury, that sort of thing. That's, that's usually how the left progresses here. Rather than examine the policies that have led to the utter destruction and hollowing out of great American cities. Although this dude says he's from Syracuse. So like that, not really a great serious city, but um, no, it's not. Um, but okay. But he went to, he went to school up there, whatever, but the policies enacted in, in blue States and blue cities in those blue States, there's no, there's no regulator there. So it's just a, it's just a constant competition to go more and more stupid, you know, to just to just try to destroy and demonize wealth and merit and success. And they really I mean, there really isn't this guy in the argument today uh, over the course of the last few hours is proof of it. The level of bigotry that exists and and this level of, you know, you will be made to care about the things that I demand you care about, because truth be told, most conservatives, limited government folks, we are a live and let live kind of people for the most part. I've had my run-ins with the uh with conservatives about gay marriage. But oh by the way, there's a there's a thing on the gay marriage front. Um James Lindsay from New Discourses made a great point about this. People who are wondering how did we go from hey, they just want to be able to, you know, visit their loved one in in the hospital Uh, Hey, they just want Social Security benefits for their partner, right? How did we go from that very rational, logical position to you have to have drag shows uh, in your kindergarten and you have to, uh, you got to neuter all of your boys and uh, yeah, 
and you got to like carve up the arms and create fake phalluses on your girls. Like how, how did we go from like, from that, from contract law basically to, to what we see with this, you know, with the mutilation and the surgeries and everything else, how do we get there? And his, this is Mott and Bailey again. This is the, the form of argument. But what happened was, and I'll explain Mott and Bailey in a second, but what, hap- what initially happens is you have, you have uh, a logical sort of um, uh, popular position. And once the victory is achieved, then the, quote, normal people, the normies, they're like, okay, done with that. Go back to, my, go back to living my life. Right. And so then they leave the, the movement. They kind of fall away. And who is left are the radicals that were always part of that movement. But there were usually more normies that were part of the movement. And so they were in positions of, of power and control and influence. And so they were the ones that they were, you know, they were, they were the ones that you put on the interview, right? They were the ones to talk to the media, go down and speak to city council or lawmakers and that sort of thing. They were the ones, they were the front men. The radicals, the agitators and stuff, they were out there too. They were, you know, they brought votes, they donated money, they generated content. But when the normies left after gay marriage, you know, was was approved by the Supreme Court voters, um, after that happened, then the 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 people who were like, this is our cause, they kind of fade away. They 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 go live about uh, going about living their lives. And who are left? These are the the radical gender theory people, critical queer theories, right? I mean, that this is who is left. So, Mott and Bailey is what I've just described. This is a debate tactic that the left uses all the time. The right can use it too, but generally speaking, this is the this is a hallmark of critical uh, critical consciousness uh, from the left. It's Marxism basically, but this is an argument style. It is Mott and Bailey, where the Mott is sort of the. Uh, that's the tower. Think in medieval terms, right? You got the tower. It's heavily fortified, easier to defend, right? And then the bailey is sort of the farmland all around the tower. And that's where people are usually out there, like wide open, exposed, right? Mott bailey. So in an, in an argument, what you have, or a movement, you have, for example, the mott, which is the easily defensible position, is... Hey, someone dying in a hospital should be able to have their spouse or their loved one, their partner, their lifelong partner that they love. They should be able to have that person at their bedside when they die. That is an easily defended position. What happens after you get people interested in that? Like people are like, oh, okay, this is okay. Yeah, we're good with this. Okay, all right, now we're going to go out to the Bailey and you're going to say, we got to chop off the genitalia of kids. And like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, all of a sudden, here come the hordes of parents, Moms for Liberty, you know, that that terrorist group, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, showing up at school board meetings. How dare they? Right. And they're out there like, no, we don't want to give uh, to for you to be showing porn to our uh, our seven year olds. You don't get this to put these books in, in my kid's hand. Uh, no, you don't get to uh, radicalize my kids, telling them that there are 72 uh, genders. Right. And so that so that's the, that's the attack that goes on to the Bailey. So what happens? The retreat occurs from the leftist. The retreat occurs back up to the Mott, back to the tower, and they say, "I don't understand why you're attacking LGBT kids." And now the the horde that was attacking this idea that 
you know, we have to show porn to kids. We got to chop off their genitals. We have to do these crazy things. Like now the horde's like, well, no, no, we're not, we're not attacking children because that's obviously who is attacking children. We're not attacking children. We're attacking this idea that you would want to show my kid porn. So that's the Mott and Bailey. So people don't defend the, you know, the charge like, you know, oh, yes, I am attacking children. And so they kind of go back, they leave the battleground. And then the leftists come back down to the Bailey and they start asserting again. Same thing with the critical race theory approach. Exact same thing. Right? They, they teach equity, inclusion, diversity. These are all good things, right? Oh, I like these ideas and stuff. And up in the mud. And then down to the Bailey they come and they say, white people are oppressors. Everything is systemically racist. We're going to teach your child that they are inherently evil. And they have to pay reparations. And all of a sudden you get all these people attacking. Like, this is a stupid thing to say. How dare you? This is unsupported by facts. And then they're like, then they retreat back up. I don't know why you don't want to just teach history. And what do they say? Well, I, well, I, I want to teach history. We should teach history, the bad stuff, the good stuff. Yes, absolutely. But we should not be telling kids that, that they're oppressors. Well, you we never said that. And then the, the participants in the battle melt away again. And then leftists come back down from the Mont out to the Bailey. And they start making all sorts of wild statements again. And just rinse and repeat. And it's the same thing. This critical consciousness is in all facets of left-wing ideology now. This is the progressive movement. It's all of this critical consciousness, which all comes from, yes, Marxism. That's where it comes from, which comes from Hegel. It's all very, it's all very linear. It's a very linear progression. You could see it. The, the, the people who espoused these philosophies and explained them went, went to great lengths and in great detail to explain all of the connections and what they mean by things. Well, okay, except Marx. His was like insanity. But, um, but everybody who builds off of that, and here's the other thing, is they use language and they make up crazy fancy words so as to put you on your heels so you don't know what they're talking about. And the people who are most susceptible, James Lindsay points this out as well, he, the people who are most susceptible to falling for this are the academic quote-unquote elites because they want to be in the elites, right? The peer pressure to accept what somebody is saying when they are learned and they are expert in this subject matter, and you're like, oh, well, they're using these fancy words, and I don't, I, I, I don't want to say that I'm confused because I'm a smart person. I mean, look, I teach at college. I'm a smart person. I can't say that I don't know what they're talking about and what they're talking about is BS. So I'm like, oh, yeah, that's absolutely true, even though they may have no idea what they're talking about. And by the way, a lot of this stuff in critical consciousness is illogical. <laughs> it's illogical. But they, they put words on it to make, you un to make you doubt yourself and your understanding. So this way they can run the ball further or farther, I should say. Well, I guess it's not really physical, so it would be further. All right, now you've heard me talk about them. Old Grouch's military surplus. They're expanding with more ways to get your hands on authentic U.S. military surplus items. Go to oldgrouch.com. Check out the links for the online auctions for rare finds and the vintage shop. Unique, really cool items from modern tactical gear to historical collectibles. Tim at Old Grouch's is always finding new stuff. When I started the podcast at the beginning of the pandemic, my first advertiser was Old Grouch's. If you enjoy the show and derive any value from it, I'm hoping that you will 
consider supporting one of the businesses that make it possible. Lots of gift ideas for that person who loves the military style for fashion or decor. There really is something for everyone at Old Grouch's Military Surplus in beautiful downtown Clyde and online at oldgrouch.com. Uh, just a heads up, if you are rocking the uh, the orange square in your social media profiles for whatever reason, you should just be on the lookout. Uh, I believe that's uh, been identified as that was an undercover signal amongst uh, pedophile sex traffickers. That's how they would identify each other. So just a heads up on that if you're using that. Um, All righty. So uh, Wall Street Journal piece by... Alicia Finley, it's an opinion piece. Uh, she talks about how author Shelby Steele and his son Eli were filming a documentary in San Francisco last week when someone broke into their rental car. In the 10 minutes we were gone, our SUV was broken into and nearly $15,000 of cameras stolen. We called 911 and they hung up on us twice. Welcome to another day ending in the letter Y in San Francisco. By the way, this exact same thing happened to CNN, uh, a uh, CNN crew back in March in San Francisco. Elon Musk tweeted, quote, many Twitter employees feel unsafe coming to work in downtown SF and have had their car windows smashed. They also got such a null response from the police that they rarely even bother reporting crimes anymore because nothing happens. Right? This is your defund the police movement. People lose sight of this. I, I know like this sounds simplistic. It sounds you know, maybe childish or immature. But anybody who's ever played a video game about building a city or building civilizations, there's some very popular games throughout the years over the last 20 years or so. And, and there are probably hundreds of different titles uh, for different games that all use some sort of city building mechanic, you know, uh, in, in all different genres and, you know, medieval and, and prehistoric times, stone age times and future and space and whatever. But like the, the first thing that you do, right. You, you set up food and security <laughs> and shelter. These are the most basic things you do. And once you get your food situation settled, and then you get your uh, shelter situation settled, then it's you beef up security because you know you got food and people are going to start trying to take it from you. It is like one of the fundamental, the fundamental thing. Nothing else happens in a civilized, ordered society if you don't have safety first. Now, that can go too far. Right? Safetyism, as Jonathan Haidt talks about and Greg Lukianoff in The Coddling of the American Mind, right? this safetyism thing where there are no risks, got to get rid of all risks, and everybody is safe, just wrap every child in bubble wrap, you know? And that's, that's the other direction. But this umbrella of security is required. And when you don't have it, no one wants to live in your little village anymore. Finley goes on to say, it's more accurate to say the police response... In San Francisco, depends on the identities of the victim and the perpetrator, though. Because in January, Shannon Collier Gwynn, a 71-year-old art gallery owner, was arrested for spraying a hose at a homeless woman that was camped in front of his business. The woman uh, had often been heard screaming in the middle of the night. Mr. Gwynn said in an apology, quote, I completely broke. 
I am not equipped or trained to deal with a citywide problem like this. People are just packing it in. Neither, it seems, by the way, are the city's politicians, right? Because the first step on the road to recovery is admitting that you have the problem, right? San Francisco's leaders refuse to acknowledge how their own policies have caused the spiral of public disorder that is driving away businesses and residents in droves. But obviously not to any red states, as Ned Barnett from the McClatchy Papers tells us. That's definitely not happening. Add to this list the Westfield San Francisco Center, whose owners last week handed their property to the lender. Quote, a growing number of retailers and businesses are leaving the area due to the unsafe conditions for customers, retailers, and employees. Coupled with the fact that these significant issues are preventing an economic recovery of the area, the mall's owner said, they're out. They're out. Those leaving are by and large affluent. According to the IRS, about 15,000 San Francisco taxpayers making $415,000 a year moved to other states. Tens of thousands more flocked to the suburbs around San Francisco. Right, So those are probably blue voters moving into blue areas around San Francisco. So this is blue flight, right? One could say that the COVID lockdowns were simply the match that lit the city's dumpster fire. So on Twitter, at Pete Callender, uh, I just saw this video come across. I have It's from Dave Rubin. And uh, so two things I have not seen. Number one, I've not seen the video, but I'm about to play it. So be ready with the dump button, uh, to, just in case. I don't think she'll say anything, but I've not pre-screened this. Number two thing I have not seen is... Uh, The press secretary called cringe Jean-Pierre. <laughs> That's terrible, but it's so true. Corinne Jean-Pierre is cringe Jean-Pierre. <laughs> so this is cringe Jean-Pierre, White House press secretary. Well, that sounds awful. Why does it sound like that? Did it sound like that to you? Was it all garbled too? That's very odd. Nothing has changed, right? That's all of the feed. I mean, I played the rim shot. I literally just played the rim shot, and that worked out just fine. So, man, I should have pre-screened that. Let's skip ahead. Yeah, no, that's terrible. I don't know what's going on with that audio. She said literally, not literally. Okay. Sorry, I apologize. See, that's terrible radio professionalism. I should have screened the thing first. I don't know why. I'll check it during the break uh, and maybe bring it back to you. Uh, if not, I shall. I'll just retire in shame. Um, so this story, the root causes of San Francisco's disorder. This is by uh, Alicia Finley over at the uh, Wall Street Journal. And uh, she says that the COVID lockdowns were the match that lit the city's dumpster fire in San Francisco. As the new normal dragged on, families and workers moved to places with more freedom, less crime, and lower housing costs and ta- uh, and taxes. Once the Bay Area's lockdowns were lifted in May of 2021, 
A lot of former residents had no desire to return to San Francisco's dirty, dangerous, and deserted streets that were studded with tents, needles, and human feces. The city has long been grungy, but the blight and crime worsened during the pandemic as city officials reduced the jail population by about 40% by releasing hundreds of inmates. Businesses are being replaced now. Also, I thought this was a great component. I've not seen this mentioned before. Businesses are being replaced by nonprofits that consume rather than contribute tax dollars, right? As, as the homelessness and the drug addiction, right, as these, these problems got worse and worse and worse, you saw this pouring in of resources, these nonprofits, but they don't generate tax dollars. They consume them. And they're not fixing the problem. And when you're not fixing the problem and you're just consuming tax dollars, then the, the, the entities that create the tax revenue, they will leave because they are no longer able to create the tax revenue. So they leave. Ryan Mills at National Review tells the story how the owner of two of San Francisco's largest downtown hotels is stopping mortgage payments and going into foreclosure on the property, stating that the city faces major challenges and that reducing exposure to the market is in the best interest of investors. Park Hotels and Resorts said that it's stopping payment on its $725 million loan secured by the two hotels. So like 3,000 rooms between these two places. One of them is the Hilton San Francisco Union Square, and the other is called Park 55. The Hilton is San Francisco's largest hotel, and Park 55 is the fourth largest hotel. The CEO of the company, Thomas Baltimore Jr., called the decision, quote, very difficult but necessary, noting record high downtown office vacancy, because you need, like, you have higher office um, well, lower office vacancy, right? If you've got a lot of office space that's filled, right? What, what does that mean? It means there's business being conducted. You've got people flying in from out of town to conduct said business. This is one of the big problems that Uptown Charlotte is now looking at because Uptown Charlotte has like, what, one out of every five floors is empty, right? We did that story a couple of uh, days ago. There were all these stories in three, it was like Business Insider and Business Journal and Charlotte Observer and uh, the Charlotte Ledger, right? They were all doing stories on the commercial real estate vacancy rate in Uptown Charlotte. And what is something like three Bank of America towers are empty right now. And what does that mean? All of the businesses that are supported by those office jobs, they are now not able to make their bottom line, their payroll. And the CEO of the company that owns these hotels, that's, I mean, think about, they're walking away from almost a billion dollar mortgage. They're just walking away from it because that's the better move for their shareholders long term. And he said, now more than ever, we believe San Francisco's path to recovery remains clouded and elongated by major challenges, both old and new. Michael Schellenberger, the author of the book San Francisco, who has blamed the city's far-left politics for many of its current problems, noted on Twitter the timing of this announcement with the rollout of the Always San Francisco campaign. 
$6 million ad campaign trying to overcome the city's global reputation as a drug and crime-ridden hellhole. Six days later, the owner of the two of city's biggest hotels says, yeah, we're out. Less than a week after you announce this big marketing blitz to try to get people to come, the biggest hotel owners are like, we're gone. Not going to work. We don't have any confidence in you. Progressive defunding of the police has indisputably led not just to lost lives, but to economic devastation in the cities that attempted it. Murders have increased 39% nationwide from 2019 to 2021. They remain far above the pre-defund the police movement levels. But the cost of crime is not just felt in lives lost. That is the most tragic impact, though. But cities that defunded the police have also been economically devastated. I talked about this a couple of days ago. The cell phone data. University of Toronto School of Cities, right? They, um, they measured all of the cell phone activity in these downtown business districts and cities. And they, they compared now to before the pandemic to see, you know, are people coming back? And what they find, according to Andrew Follett at National Review, is that cities that did not defund the police have generally recovered, while those that did defund the police have a mere fraction of the foot traffic that they had before 2020. Message received, right? Why would people go to your business district and participate in economic activity if they know that there's no security there? Why, how could you ask people to participate in that society? Oh, hey, real quick, before I forget, Carolina Readiness Supply is prepping for its annual Heritage Life Skills event. It's coming up in July, and you can learn how to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables, all sorts of stuff. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness Supply can help. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. That's carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? Um, so some of the cities that opted for the defund the police plan of attack after uh, after the death of uh, St. George Floyd. Those cities that defunded the police have also now been economically devastated. I mentioned this, this study of the cell phone activity and the cities that had defunded the police. They have not, they have not seen a return to their uh, business districts, San Francisco being one of them, but also Chicago. And by the way, this is a, a piece, nationalreview.com, by Andrew Follett called How Defunding the Police Defunded the Economy. And he gives all sorts of data. I'm, not, I'm just telling you the cities, but he breaks down all of these different cities. San Fran, Chicago. Um, St. Louis, Portland, Minneapolis, Oakland, right? And progressives originally tried to blame the, the surging crime in, in urban areas on COVID-19 and its effects, right? But the data tell a different story. The surge in homicide rates began in late May 2020. And that's when the, the riots started, right? The police defunding crap started, 
right? Didn't start in March when the country shut down in response to the virus. Now, I don't think you get to, like, I don't think you have the reaction that we saw with, um, with the George Floyd protests, with the BLM protests, I think a lot of that got heightened because it was deemed to be okay. That, like, because COVID knows, because COVID is the smartest virus ever. And so it knows if you are out there, you know, singing in your church choir, then it will smite you. But if it, you are out there protesting for social justice, then uh, you are free to go. Uh, then it, it knows that this is a more noble cause. And you are allowed to go out, take to the streets and protest. This is what our health experts told us they literally said that protesting for social and racial justice that's more important than staying safe from covid and that was the first indication like oh okay this is all crap oh all right i see now the surge in homicides begins in may late may and that's after the riots had started not in march when all the shutdowns happen. Also, cities that did not defund their police departments suffered through exactly the same pandemic, but they have since recovered. Salt Lake City actually increased police funding during this period, and they've seen an increase in downtown traffic, foot traffic, 139%. They're going gangbusters in Salt Lake City. Columbus and El Paso, they refused to defund their police departments, They've got more foot traffic now, 109%, 106%. El Paso saw 28 murders last year, and that's fewer than before the pandemic, right? So there's a, there's a closer correlation to the defunding efforts than there is to COVID. The economic costs of the crime wave are devastating. Pre-pandemic crime already cost America $2.6 trillion a year. That's like 12% of our GDP. One Justice Department experiment from 2006 says that they, it estimated that each burglary costs a community about $25,000. Think about that. Every burglary, twenty-five grand. Every assault is seventy grand. Every murder, $10 million. That's the economic cost. Another study found every murder has a social cost to the community of $30 million. This means that the low-end estimate of the social damage caused by the increase of 6,475 murders during the 2019 to 2021 time frame, you're talking anywhere from about $100 billion to $250 billion. You could buy 10 aircraft carriers for that cost. American cities are paying the price of defunding the police. They're paying it in the form of invaluable human lives, tragedy, right? But also extreme economic damage. That is part of what we are seeing. It's not just the, the needle uh, policies and the, um, the paying of the homeless people in, in San Francisco, right? It's not just that. It is partly that, but it is also the defund the police effort as well. Thank you.